The civil war in Syria is now stretching into its fourth year, and the consequences have been catastrophic. 150,000 lives lost, 9 million people displaced. And the nightmare continues, seemingly without any hope for resolution. Many have questioned whether the international community could have done more to prevent such a crisis. But what exactly could have been done? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Dr. Charles Kogan, an associate of the Belfer Center's International Security Program. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. 150,000 lives. That's a staggering number. It's almost incomprehensible to think about. Sure. It's hard not to feel like the United States you know, could have done something or maybe should have done something. But last year, that almost happened. We almost became involved militarily. So can you talk us through what exactly happened? I'd like to begin with an account of the January 27th edition of The New Yorker, an article by David Remnick, who had a series of interviews with uh, President Obama. And uh, I quote from a passage in this article on Syria. This is, this is uh, uh, Remnick talking. I asked Obama if he was haunted by Syria, and though the mask of equipoise rarely slips, an indignant expression crossed his face. I am haunted by what has happened, he said. I am not haunted by my decision not to engage in another Middle Eastern war. It is very difficult to imagine a scenario in which our involvement in Syria would have led to a better outcome, short of us being willing to undertake an effort in size and scope similar to what we did in Iraq. And when I hear people suggesting that somehow, if we had just financed and armed the opposition earlier, that somehow Assad would be gone by now and we'd have a peaceful transition. It's magical thinking. So I think that this uh, quote that I just uh, read tells it all in the sense that, uh, number one, Obama avoided another military intervention in what would have been a fourth Muslim country after Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and then Syria. And secondly, the idea that if we had intervened earlier to help the rebels, uh, Assad would be gone, I think is, is, is as, I think it's fantasy because usually uh, the extremist elements in a revolutionary movement usually get the upper hand. Now as to what happened really to avoid US uh, involvement in Syria, I think uh, a lot depended on the fact that the uh, British parliament rejected David Cameron, the prime minister, rejected uh, his request to approve an intervention, military intervention in Libya. And that gave President Obama the cover for doing the same thing regarding the U.S. Congress, knowing, as he probably did, that the U.S. Congress would never approve an, inter an armed intervention in Syria. So that's how he avoided it. And these two events took place in rapid succession in August of 2013. I think on a Thursday, Parliament voted uh, against an intervention in Syria. And then the next evening, uh, Obama took a—this was a Friday, I think it was August 30th—he took a walk in the south lawn of the White House with Dennis McDonough, his uh, national security advisor, and disclosed to McDonough that he's going to turn the whole thing over to the Congress. And then the next uh, evening, uh, uh, he— uh, he told his circle of advisors, and they were very surprised. And then he made a phone call to François Hollande, the president of France, who was all set to go with a raid. The French were going to uh, 
raid the western part of Syria and the Americans the eastern part, and he told him that he decided to turn the problem over to the Congress, and of course Hollande was dumbfounded, but I, I don't think he was terribly disappointed because it's a risky intervention. And the thing about this intervention, if it had taken place, it would have put the United States squarely on the side of the rebels against uh, the uh, Bashar al-Assad regime. Uh, and I think the, the rebels have some very questionable elements that have have, have joined, particularly uh, uh, the uh, rebel group that's allied with al-Qaeda, which is the Nusra Front, and the even more extremist uh, group, uh, the uh, it's called ISIS, it means the uh, revolutionary movement in Iraq and Syria, and those, the ISIS is mainly uh, uh, non-Syrian, whereas Nusra Front is Syrian. ISIS has a lot of people from outside, particularly Iraq. Those jihadist rebel groups have been engaging some, in some atrocities of their own, including mass executions and the murder of a seven-year-old boy for apostasy. Between those groups and the Assad regime, it doesn't seem like the U.S. is anyone they could support in Syria. Well, the United States supports the political opposition from abroad that was represented at the Geneva Conference, and they support the Free Syrian Army, which, however, has become weaker vis-a-vis the other Islamist elements in the rebellion. There's been some training of uh, Free Syrian Army elements in Jordan, uh, sponsored by the U.S., but uh, uh, the the U.S., I think, is, is in an ambiguous role now because of the strength of the Islamists and the jihadists in the uh, opposition opposition movement. On the other hand, uh, going over to support of Bashar al-Assad is not in the cards as far as the U.S. is concerned. That would be my opinion. So with no one to support, how can the international community approach the crisis and find some kind of solution? Well, there was an attempt, as you know, in, in the Geneva II conference, which uh, the Russians uh, agreed to with us, uh, La- Se- uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and Secretary of State uh, uh, Kerry. Uh, my impression is the Russians were not very cooperative in moving that conference along because the conference had two objectives. One was to uh, end terrorism in Syria, and the other was to arrange a transitional process toward another government. And uh, the uh, Syrian delegation wouldn't budge on this uh, second uh, objective, and uh, whether the Russians could have pressured them, I suspect they could have, but I don't know. Uh, they didn't seem to, so uh, it was a uh, it was a washout. And uh, now we're coming up to uh, a new election in Syria, and uh, the Syrian government has sort of let, let out hints that uh, Bashar al-Assad could run again. And the special envoy of the UN to Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, has said that if this takes place, that's sort of the end of the peace process. He's, he's uh, in favor of a transitional arrangement, uh, as, as, and, and that's part of the, uh, uh, the uh, resolution, I believe it's a UN resolution, uh, that uh, started this Geneva process. Geneva won, I think it was in 2012, they laid out the uh, principles for change in Syria, one of which was uh, a transitional government. And that was one of the bases for this uh, Geneva II conference in uh, last, uh, late last year, I believe it was, which failed. Uh, that is a transitional arrangement. And so far, the Syrian government has refused to budge on this.
Now, it seems like Russia is an incredibly important player in this. They have a naval base in Tardis, and uh, they were instrumental in creating the conditions where uh, chemical weapons could be removed from Syria. During the Obama administration, the U.S. has tried to get the Russians on board, not just in Syria, but also in Iran. Now, with what's happening in Ukraine and the U.S. and other Western countries levying sanctions on Russia, is there a way that Russia can compartmentalize these issues and still work with the West on Syria? Well, that's, uh, that's the major question of the day. By the way, I think that although the impression is that uh, Putin uh, pulled uh, Obama's chestnuts out of the fire on this chemical weapons proposal, the fact is that Kerry and Lavrov had been discussing uh, what to do about Syrian chemical weapons since March of 2012, and uh, in last fall, before the uh, uh, before the decision to uh, that was accepted by Syria to move out the move the chemical weapons out, uh, it was agreed between uh, uh, President Putin and. Uh, President Obama in St. Petersburg, I think it was the 6th of September uh, last year, uh, to uh, f follow up on this proposal to do something about Syrian chemical weapons. So although it looked like a, a, a Russian uh, triumph, uh, it's, it was uh, uh, something uh, much more sort of jointly arranged between the Americans and the Russians. But to come to your uh, major question, uh, I think there is uh, a cloud hanging over the Iranian nuclear negotiations now because I think it's, the Russians could well uh, sabotage uh, this interim agreement which is uh, due to uh, be realized by uh, the end of June, supposed to be uh, turning into a comprehensive agreement. I think, that, uh, I think it's going to be difficult for, uh, uh, to compartmentalize uh, the negotiations on Iran and Syria uh, from what is happening in Ukraine, which is an ongoing crisis, and we don't know what the next moves by Putin are. But I think, uh, as I wrote in a blog uh, yesterday, I think uh, Putin has shown finally that his word is not to be trusted, and so we have to keep that in mind. Wasn't the contention that Obama was saved by Putin because military action was only on the table due to Obama's red line over the use of chemical weapons? Well, I think uh, you're right. He, he, he overspoke himself both on, in his earlier statement at the very beginning of the uh, uh, revolt, which is now th three years old. He, he said that Bashar al-Assad must go. And then later on he said that uh, use of chemical weapons would be a red line. Uh, he, uh, he has a tendency to make these categoric commitments which uh, can come back to, to, to haunt him. In the meantime, we're at this coming weekend, we're at the third anniversary of the start of the revolt, and it's produced, as you said, I think the estimate is 150,000 deaths. It's produced uh, 9 million displaced persons from Syria, of which 2.5 million are outside the country uh, now, and uh, almost a million in Lebanon alone. So it's very huge humanitarian problem, probably the greatest in, uh, in uh, recent history. Has enough been done to help ease the lives of the nine million who've been displaced? 
Well, I think a lot more could be done with a certain degree of cooperation on the part of the uh, Syrian government, but the Syrian government seems to uh, want to isolate uh, and starve out these uh, communities, uh, urban communities, particularly through, throughout the country. So they have not been cooperating. There was one moment of cooperation following the Geneva II conference in which they let some people uh, out of the Homs uh, urban uh, environment, but uh, other than that, uh, attempts to uh, bring humanitarian aid uh, have been stymied, although the U.S. is by far the largest contributor to humanitarian aid in Syria. I think it's, it's, it's quite up there. But, uh, you know, a lot more could be done because the dimensions of this crisis are so huge. Well, Dr. Charles Kogan, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Mm-hmm.